The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It really comes down to one, can you look the part? And two, are you talking the talk? It doesn't mean that you have to 100% blend in. And it definitely doesn't mean that you need to dress or act like a man. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Last week, I spoke to Sasha Kellerman, head of women and family health care, investment banking at Lyrink Partners, where she heads up a practice like no other on Wall Street. In that episode, Sasha discussed the underfunded opportunity in women and family health, how she rose to create and start that practice at Learing Partners, and we talked about how she went from media advertising into banking and the trade-offs and calculus needed to be a banker and raise a family. Most of all, how being a banker and a mother are central to her identity and her success. Today, we're talking about uncomfortable truths that women face in traditionally male-dominated industries like banking. Do you need to act like a man to get ahead? How to make sure you don't get dismissed or talked over? And how to be assertive and not get backlash? Sasha's got strong views and very practical advice on brand and presence, communicating for maximum impact, and negotiating for professional advancement. Areas that were game changers, not only for her, but for those she mentors and seeks to elevate. Sasha Kellerman is head of Women and Family Health and Technology Investment Banking at Lyrink Partners, based in New York. Prior to Lyrink, Sasha was a VP at Goldman Sachs, completed her MBA at University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, and started her career in media and advertising. She resides in New York with her husband and two curious daughters, and was named to Business Insider's list of 30 under 40 that are transforming healthcare. Sasha, welcome back to 97% Effective. Thank you, Michael. Let's talk about your career and about how you advocate and help others surviving, thriving to get to the, the top ranks and, and getting a seat at the decision-making table. And you have very specific advice 
and I, and I just want to preface this by saying clearly hard work, being smart, being driven, these things that you've already talked about, that being a sponge are critical. But we know from the research and much of what I do is that your interpersonal skills, how you show up, your network, things that you've alluded to are very much important drivers as you get into organizations. And you had very specific advice around three areas, executive presence and communication, building relationships, and negotiating for professional advancement. So let, let's look at those each in turn. If we start with communication and executive presence, you spoke about physical brand and presence. What do you mean here? Yeah, so each each industry and, and firm within that sort of has a unique culture that's really important to identify. And it's important to understand, try to blend in. You, you can't really show up day one and rock the boat, but you can make little changes over time that really add up. You don't have to completely assimilate, but it is important to look around, see how are others communicating to be firm specific aware, ultimately, I think executive presence, it really comes down to one, can you look the part and two, are you talking the talk? It doesn't mean that you have to 100% blend in and it definitely doesn't mean that you need to dress or act like a man. So looking the part in investment banking or finance in general, suits were the norm before COVID. So as I mentioned earlier, I did not own a, a suit at all. I had to make some investments to make sure that when I was showing up for interviews, that I was prepared and I would be taken seriously. So I, I bought suits in the only acceptable colors that people wore in investment banking, and that was black, dark gray, and navy blue, black only for women. The only time men wore black suits were for funerals. <laughs> I bought closed-toed shoes. I wore small pearl earrings and minimal makeup. But I also wanted to include a few elements that made me feel powerful and competent. And so for me, that means making sure my hair is blown out, my nails are done. And I made sure to do that for my interviews, for all of my networking events. And over time, I started also incorporating a little bit more detail and those little accents to make you stand out a little more, make me feel more feminine, especially as I went, you know, as I grew up in, in the investment banking years. So I started to wear more color, different blouses or, or shoes, or I added lipstick, or I started wearing statement earrings. During COVID, for example, my husband and I bought a house and I decorated my home office. So instead of the typical boring white background, I put up very bright wallpaper, which brightens my day, but it's actually been an incredible conversation starter through most of my Zooms during the pandemic. And the second element is really talking the talk. So there's, again, certain firm-specific and industry-specific communication norms that are crucial to be able to pick up. And, and the way to identify that early on is just be a sponge. Read other people's emails. How do they talk to each other internally? What are similarities? Are, are they using certain phrases? Are they not including certain communication? Listen to how others speak in meetings. How do they agree and disagree with each other? For example, in again, investment banking, where, where I specialize, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's fairly hierarchical in some firms more than others. And there's a few sort of small norms that <laughs> eventually you'll pick up, ideally on day one or two. For example, when sending an email, it's common or expected that you'll order the names of the recipients in the two line from the most senior to the most junior. When you're emailing an attachment, you know, you're an associate emailing something to a more senior banker, you'll attach a PDF. But when you're sending something to 
your associate, for example, or your analyst, you will send the hyperlink to the PowerPoint presentation, but you don't want to attach the presentation because then you'll run into version control issues. <laughs> when you're emailing someone more senior than you, you more often than not will notice that people will end their emails by saying, please let us know of any questions or comments. And when you receive an email from seniors, it's crucial to reply as soon as possible, will do or confirm receipt. These are little small things, small details that I've actually seen others complain about. I, I remember hearing a colleague a bit annoyed when he was listed in an email at the end, even though he was a managing director, where I've seen in reviews uh, a person noted as not a cultural fit because they, they didn't pick up the lingo right away. And so ultimately, I think it's important to observe before you react to then be able to identify what are some of the communication small cues that I should include in my vocabulary or exclude in order to fit in more. And, and so is it being that sponge and watching it, are there lessons you can get from certain people? Like going in and asking sometimes when you're early in your career, kind of look weak, right? Is there a way to do that diplomatically or is it simply just be a sponge and pay very close attention? So it likely would depend on the organization. How I went about it was when I joined after business school, I was like a full intern class joining. And so I got paired with a sort of buddy equivalent in my group. And so that was a person I could ask sort of my, all of my questions to. I also got to know my fellow intern class. So that really became my initial network. And so those were the people that I could, as one of us, as one of us would learn something or pick something up, we'd share with the others. That was a group of people that we could ask our silliest questions to and, and not feel and not, not feel like we were risking saving face. And so that's ultimately the way that I, I went about it. Also, this part around communication. One, one thing that, that comes up a lot is use of hedging language that may make you look less in command or confident or even apologizing too much. Again, there's firm-specific culture, but I know when we talked, you were really working with younger people to be careful of overly apologizing and, and undercutting themselves. And any advice or perspectives that you've picked up in this regard? Yes, and, and I'm sure we've all seen the literature and examples on this, and women do tend to be more susceptible to certain pitfalls in communication. Again, that doesn't mean all women do, but we see it more often than not. I think I noticed it more when I was in business school and I had a professor who, I, I was at Darden for my MBA, which is case method based. And so you have to raise your hand when you want to share your perspective and women would raise their hand halfway because if they weren't confident enough. And so this professor said, raise your hand proud, even if you don't know the answer, otherwise you're not gonna get called on. So ultimately started that way, but Things that I see more often than not, and I either have tried to eliminate from my vocabulary as well as remind my mentees and, and, and sponsees of, of how to eliminate from their vocabulary and reasons for it are, for example, you don't need to apologize, especially if you didn't make a mistake. If you didn't do anything wrong, there's no reason you need to apologize and say, I'm sorry for having a question. And you don't need to diminish your credibility by saying, this is probably not right, but Men don't do this, women tend to do this, people of color tend to do this. You should ask questions. But when you do ask questions, make sure they're thoughtful. You should speak up. You should share your perspective. You have something to contribute. But when you do speak, 
do not end your sentences in upspeak, meaning your statements sound like questions because that diminishes your credibility. You're not going to always agree with someone and likely others won't always agree with you, but there's different ways that you can answer. You may say things like, I don't disagree, or piggybacking off of that idea, we could consider X, Y, and Z. Importantly, something that I see happen more often than not, especially in kind of a career where it's more male dominated, a little bit more aggressive than you likely would or competitive than you would get elsewhere is don't let others interrupt you. Men do this all the time. It's very uncomfortable to speak up, but important. So I, I remember I was in an internal meeting several months ago with maybe around 20, 30 senior bankers all sitting around a table and we each were going around the horn sharing our ideas around certain topics. And I was sharing my perspective on a particular issue. And this other banker kept interrupting me and, and did it a few times. And so I calmly said to him, let me finish. And then I would be happy to hear your perspective. Well, this person did not interrupt anyone else after that. <laughs> and it was very clear that he had mistakenly dipped his toe in something he did not want to get involved in. And so that quickly changed the dynamic of the conversation. But I had to actually step up and say that in front of a group of 20 to 30 other people, 99% of whom were men. And that was uncomfortable for me to do. But I thought it would be more uncomfortable for me to walk away from this meeting and not been able to share the perspective and, and my ideas that I had worked really hard to curate. So letting that be your, your guiding principle and then being clear, concise, and assertive about it. Tough and uncomfortable as that was. Yes, I think a lot of things, a lot of these confrontations, because no one loves confrontation, can be uncomfortable, but there's also a healthy level of, of, of being uncomfortable. You never really improve and change unless you're a little bit uncomfortable. So I think it's being comfortable with that. Yeah. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. So talking about the second piece, which is around what you characterize as building relationships, we know from the literature that sponsors are critical to moving everyone up in organizations. And a sponsor being someone who advocates behind closed doors for you. And there's a lot said about don't get a mentor, get a sponsor. There's a lot of cliches out there. And it's, you know, you don't just go up to someone, will you be my sponsor? What is the key bin for you? Or how do you advise people to, to get powerful, influential people in your camp advocating and supporting you on your ascent? I wish it were as simple as just asking someone. That's not been, that's not been the path that I've taken. <laughs> I agree, it is extremely important to have both mentors and sponsors and they are different roles. I often find that when I'm on panels or there's women on panels, we often get asked the same question, which I think don't get asked as much of men, which is interesting. So what I focused on, especially coming out of business school, coming out of Professor Bellamy's class, I identified who are the people in positions of power. And by that, I mean, who controls compensation, promotions, career opportunities. And I made a list. I told myself it was my job to get to know them. And senior people are really busy. So it's not their job to get to know you, right? They're not going to come to you and say, hey, Sasha, we haven't caught up in a while. Why don't we have lunch or coffee? So I set reminders on my calendar 
and I invited them to get coffee or lunch. I've never had someone say no. I encourage all of my mentees and sponsees to do that because if they are in charge of their own career path, it's a mistake to think that the most senior person is going to hold your hand, Michael, through every single career, the career move or development milestone. You are in the driver's seat of your own career. And so as I think about identifying those sponsors, I thought, okay, well, I have to get to know them, but what does that really mean? And what it boils down to is finding one common data point with somebody else. And that's it. And it doesn't need to be your gender or your race or where you went to school, uh, but you do need to get to know them and find out what that is. Um, that's really why I advocate for not separating your personal and professional lives, because it could be really small things. And that is important to identify. It can also be really inspiring when you see someone that has that one data point in common with you, you start to believe that you can make it too. And so more often than not, once you, you do that, conversation will flow more easily. And so, for example, the head of my former group was a, a kind of more introverted person. I invited him for lunch and quickly learned that he had twins and he really liked pistachios. And you know what? I have a twin brother and I love pistachios. And so those small things are just at least initial conversation starters. It's one common data point. I made a mistake when I joined my first large professional organization. I got caught up in the hamster wheel of working on deals. And so I forgot the importance of having multiple sponsors with a seat at the table. And so what that means is, for example, when it's the compensation cycle and in investment banking, partners usually will control the deal flow and the compensation decisions as well as promotions. At the time, I had been concentrating most of my work with one senior managing director who happened to be the only female MD and was working primarily with her. While she was up for the partner promotion, she wasn't yet a partner, and so she didn't have a seat at the table. And I realized coming out of that compensation cycle that I didn't have the stakeholder who was my biggest advocate in the room at all. So coming out of that, I changed my plan. And I was very direct with her about it too. She'd become a mentor and a sponsor for me. And I said, look, I need to diversify my stakeholders because I need to make sure that I have multiple people pounding the table for me. So what I did is I thought, who are the most influential people in the group? What do they work on? What do I like working on? What kind of transactions or verticals? And I identified, I was really interested in healthcare technology, that one of the co-heads of the healthcare technology Focus was also a co-head of mergers and acquisitions, another area I was super interested by and a very senior partner. And so I reached out to the head of my group, to the co-head of M&A, to the co-head of healthcare technology and invited them to lunch. And I remember everybody around me was shocked. My peers said, I can't believe you're just emailing them out of the blue. <laughs> and you know what? They all said yes. And I ended up sitting for two hours with lunch and again, was able to learn that one data point over time, I, I set reminders on my calendar, okay, invite them to get coffee, to really build and continue that relationship. And pretty soon, I was getting staffed on deals with them. I was working with them on recruiting for their alma mater. I, I had learned more about their family, and we could just share jokes. So it ultimately very much changed the game by being very proactive in my career and making sure that I had those stakeholders. And importantly, when I joined, I remembered my mistakes from the past and where I wanted to be proactive. And so when I was <laughs> accepting my offer on the phone with my boss, I, one of the requirements that I mentioned was, 
I wanted to have lunch with him once a quarter. And the reason for this was that I, he's again, very busy. <laughs> I thought he may not work on the same transactions that I work on. So how am I going to get to know him? And I also really was curious about learning how to build a new business, which he was doing. And so that was really exciting for me. And again, it was easy to ask for that early on. You can't really ask for that six months or a year into the job. It's just a bit awkward then. And so at first we, you know, started our quarterly lunches and really quickly it became something that I was really looking forward to. I learned so much about him and really missed our lunches while I was out of maternity leave. But I've gotten to know him personally and professionally and love the relationship that I've built. I think it's also provided me more access to the firm, to different opportunities, uh, more open communication. And I also know that when I was faced with a few challenges over the last year, personally, I was able to go to him uh, because I had built that, that dialogue and that repertoire. Uh, but again, that was a very conscious decision uh, to make sure that I was having FaceTime with the important decision makers and finding out what is that one or common data point that I, that I could find with those in positions of power. Absolutely proactive in terms of managing your career. There are probably folks who are listening, and you've probably encountered this, who would say, this is borderline brown nosing, or I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. You even said many of your, your peers were shocked that, that you did something like that. Many people fear their peers. There's others who would say, Hmm, maybe crossing a line if, if outside of work, especially women who are saying inviting men out. These issues around brown nosing, how your peers perceive you, and uncomfortable situations potentially for women in all male environments. I specifically, to your comment on getting to know someone outside of the workplace, I have never invited anyone for drinks unless it's a group specific thing. I tend to focus on lunch and coffee that is more neutral ground, which, which for me, I'm more comfortable with. So that's sort of the, the venues that I tend to pick. In terms of being liked by your peers or your, those more senior, I think you can manage both. It's not you can either be liked by your peers or those more senior than you. And you also don't need to be liked by everybody. Um, you do need to be liked by those in positions of power if you want to succeed and move up in your organization and have those opportunities. Um, it is possible to bring, and I prefer candidly, to bring others up with me. What I mean by that is specifically, I, I lead our women's network as well. When I, for example, have my quarterly lunches with my boss, I usually will have a list of maybe two or three things that I want to highlight at some point. That might be a particular positive client interaction that went really well. It may be a, a deal that I help source. Um, but importantly, I always touch on certain individuals who I've worked with on my teams. And I highlight X person did this exceptionally well. I was really impressed by this interaction and how she handled this really challenging experience with the client or transaction or whatever it may be. And I've always found that there's more credibility when somebody else um, highlights a success than if you highlight your own. So those have been ways that I've tried my best to elevate others with me, which is genuine. Of course, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak on someone's behalf that isn't actually delivering the things that I'm saying. Um, but again, I think it's, there's different ways that I can both augment my relationship 
and my standing with that that person in power or senior position while elevating others up with me. Brilliant. Our, our last area, negotiating for professional advancement. I, I love this expression that you had said to me and you say to others, make them tell you no. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so I love negotiating and I think everything is negotiable. Several years ago, I negotiated my mattress when I was when I was purchasing a new bed, I helped friends negotiate their PhD stipends. I've negotiated my rent. Professionally, obviously a big negotiator in all of the mergers and acquisitions. I've built decision trees and a competitive dynamic I think is super interesting. But most people are uncomfortable, especially if you're talking about negotiating on your behalf. They can negotiate for their clients or a friend, but when it's saying, this is important to me, you see a lot of people kind of stop. And so make them tell you no is something that has been one of my guiding principles, candidly, even to being an, a woman with a family in finance. I often see, especially women and people of color, opting out of careers or promotions or something that might be more challenging before even asking for what they need. What you need is important. Uh, but I worked extremely hard to get my job and invest in banking, and I was not just going to give that up without trying to make it work. For example, negotiating when I was joining, it was really important to me to have some flexibility over my schedule, especially in terms of working from home or in person. I'm at a critical moment in my life where I'm both in career acceleration, but I'm also in family acceleration. And again, I, I want to be present and active in both. And so I had that direct communication during the negotiation process. And I said, this is important to me. I need to have flexibility in terms of working in the office as well as from home so that I can see my family because my daughters go to bed at 7 p.m. And I'm willing to travel. I'm willing to come in early on certain days and I'm willing to do what you and the firm need of me, but this is what I need of you. Majority of people don't ask for what they need. They automatically opt out. I actually started a panel when I was at Darden of why women should opt into finance uh, because a lot of times you assume it's more challenging. There's no way that a firm or group could accommodate a certain request, which is what I found to be not the case. Even for example, I'm the first woman in my group to take maternity leave. And so when I asked, do we have a lactation room? <laughs> what, what is our maternity leave policy? First, these, there weren't ready answers. And ultimately my team, even though it's primarily men, have been the most supportive and the most wonderful to work with. And they've told me and said, look, anything you need, you have to communicate and let us know and we will find a way to make it work. But it wasn't until I actually asked, because again, you can't assume somebody else knows what you're going to need to succeed. And so this make them tell you no <laughs> comment or mantra is really important to me. My husband reminds me of it. Sometimes if I am doubting myself or nervous about something coming up, and ultimately I think if a firm is going to tell you no, then maybe that's not the firm for you. And that's also okay. So a lot of this is about asking being bold and being clear on certain things that you want. What about some of the literature shows that women who will negotiate or people of color who are more assertive get penalized for that in a way that a, that a man would not? Are there ways to thread this for, for women or people of color? It's true. I've read the literature as well. I would also say that certain industries, you don't see that as much. In the field that I work, it is more competitive 
it is a bit more aggressive and you do stand out more, which is sort of the norm. So I would say this is different than, for example, when I worked in media, which that was sort of not the case. And so the way that I tend to phrase certain things, specifically the way that I tend to phrase negotiating, for example, a promotion or a raise, and that the way that I've advised mentees is, you can say things like, given my contributions to X, Y, and Z, a promotion is important to me. Or given my accomplishments of A and B, I believe this dollar amount is what I'm valued at. And importantly, then you should just stop talking because then you'll start negotiating against yourself. You let the other party react. Now, I've never had, although I've read the research, I've never had backlash or pushback on being too aggressive during a negotiation, but I've sort of always had back pocket prepared to say, especially when I'm negotiating on my behalf, if I won't negotiate on my behalf, then how can you expect me to successfully do that on behalf of my clients? Um, again, if you don't negotiate for yourself, you're number one, then I think it's challenging to imagine how you can do something better for somebody else. So a lot of this is about being prepared. And I, and I remember you also saying you very much rehearse and practice, yes. which may go back to your communication background. Yes. Anything that I felt uncomfortable with, I tried to practice ad nauseum until I just start believing it too. So that's how I started with public speaking and presentations. For example, I would write out either the script or bullet points of what I wanted to say on each slide. And I would physically walk around my room, say it out loud. I remember if I could say it in the shower, I was still washing my hair that I knew I'd gotten the points down. That muscle memory and practice helps overcome some of the nerves and fear that come when you're doing something that is new or uncomfortable, or you may not have as much experience with. Again, it's a lot of preparation. But also before going into a presentation or negotiation, a meeting, certain things that I tend to do as well is <laughs> I tend to do power poses. I, I know that there's some literature supporting and it seems silly, but literally going to the bathroom and put your arms up, it works. I, I try my best to present standing up. So for example, I got a standing desk at my home office. And so when I'm presenting on Zoom, as I am right now, for example, I am standing up because I am physically taking up more space. I am balanced and it makes me feel more confident in when I am speaking. And so there's certain things that you can try to do. Obviously, you can't control every environment around you. But if there's certain things that you've noticed after some of this practice that increase your confidence level, make you feel more calm, get some of the nerves out, would encourage you to continue in doing that. Indeed, it is about the, the practice, and you've highlighted an incredible array of, of very effective techniques there. I would add to that videotaping yourself when you present so you can see how you come across. Nothing like, you know, in athletics, going back and watching the videotapes. There is the part about advocating for yourself and negotiating when you're seeking promotions, compensation, et cetera. The question I want to ask is also, having the work to talk about, there is research that shows women will take on a lot of administrative work that tends to not be the high impact, high profile work that is central to the firm or not perceived to be central. Women tend to get assigned it more and they tend to take it on at a greater rate than, than men. Reflections? Yes, I've definitely encountered this at work and during my time in business school, especially things like taking notes or being the person to organize the next call or something like that. So for example, I 
made a point of never volunteering to take notes. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't take notes. I always take notes when I'm on calls, especially on Zoom, because I want to make sure I'm not forgetting something, but I'm not going to volunteer to take notes for the rest of my team because ultimately then that will be designated to me every single time. And again, it comes down to an opportunity cost of time. And if I'm the one responsible for planning the next meeting or taking notes or some other admin project, that means I'm therefore not working on some other really exciting, pivotal, important assignment. So the advice that I would give is if, if the research shows that women tend to get designated these elements more, A, definitely don't volunteer for it, but be proactive again. So instead of volunteering for admin, you should proactively early on volunteer for the really technical hard stuff. What is the meat of what you're trying to organize and do? What does your boss need you to do? How can you make your boss's life easier? Volunteer for that. If you do get designated admin work or some equivalent kind of menial task that isn't really gonna move the bar, the way that I would typically respond is I'm more than happy to get to this after I've completed X, Y, and Z, big important deliverable, that's high priority. That way you're highlighting all the other impactful work that you're doing and that you have on your plate. So it's noticed and not forgotten behind the, again, process admin work that you have to do. But again, I still do it on the side for myself to keep myself organized, but not something that I want to do necessarily on behalf of my full team regularly. Yeah. The, the headline that's coming here is that the best defense is a good offense. <laughs> yes. You can tell that I played I played soccer growing up, and I have a twin brother. We were a little competitive with each other. You also place C-suite and board members. Can you share some insights here on how people get picked and what women and minorities may be able to do to get them better positioned? It's a challenging one, especially for the board role perspective, because the majority of companies understandably want someone that's previously sat on a board. And so some ways that especially women or people of color can get that credibility and experience is look for nonprofit boards that you can sit on. Uh, there are a lot more of them. A lot of nonprofits uh, that I've worked with or, or know would love experience from someone in the for-profit sector. It's a different perspective to bring. Um, it can be personally fulfilling, but again, it gives you something else to add to your resume if you're a first-time board member. Mm. And the things that you're looking for when you place people, are there specific markers that you look for placing C-suite board? I, I do focus on doing my best to place women and people of color and making sure at least there's a diverse perspective. I, I focus on one's prior experience, especially I would work with both public and private companies. Some are venture backed, some are private equity backed, and depending on the opportunity, making sure there's credibility there. Ultimately, it needs to be it needs to be the right fit. And a lot of this becomes a question of just timing. And so it goes back to, again, building relationships, networking. How do you stay top of mind so that when that right opportunity comes along, you know, I will think about that candidate. And so, for example, this morning, I just got an email from someone who I worked with on a transaction um, several years ago, and former CFO, who I've, I've kept that relationship with. And so every quarter or so, every few months, he will reach out to me and catch up and, and see what's going on in the market, give me an update on, on his board opportunities, his search, boards he's sitting on, what he's looking for, what he's not looking for, because sometimes it's also more helpful to know what you don't want than it is to know what you want. And so that, for example, is a great way for him to stay top of mind with me so that when I am in a meeting next with a particular company, if they raise, hey, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z board member, that person will be more top of mind.
So, Sasha, this has been brilliant. We have covered a lot of key areas with incredible practical insights. Is there any final topic or question that, that you would like to add as we come to an end here? You've covered everything, Michael. I'm always excited to meet with innovators and founders and investors in women and family health. And so to the extent any of your listeners are in that space, um, please do feel free to reach out via LinkedIn. I would love to, to learn a little more about what they're building. Sasha, tremendous accelerating your career, also accelerating your family. Sasha Kellerman is head of Women and Family Health and Technology Investment Banking at Lyrink Partners based in New York. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.